Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. On April 14th of 1912, a really big boat by the name of the Titanic ran into a really big iceberg and sank to uh, the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Hopefully that's not new information to you. It's a pretty critical event in American history. But I remember when I was a kid and I heard that story, I was always just kind of confused. I'm like, why didn't the boat just turn? Just get out of the, how bad of a boat driver do you have to be to miss a, an iceberg? It's like, you can see it coming, right? Well, I've, I've grown up now. I'm a bit wiser and I understand. Well, one, it's a really big boat. It's not your 22-foot pontoon boat. You can't just like turn it on a dime. But two, and more importantly, as you guys likely know, yes, the, the tip of an iceberg, although it might look pretty big, the reality is underneath the, the iceberg, it goes deeper and it is bigger than you could ever imagine. And as I was studying out the the text for this morning, in Matthew 7, I was thinking about Jesus' words. I thought about the Titanic. Because Jesus, the first three words of our passage, Jesus says, do not judge. And I think on on the surface, people could easily take those three words and say things like, Well, yeah, don't tell people that they're wrong. You have no right to to judge other people's actions or what they do or anything like that. And and you might hear those things and go, well, they have a point, right? Didn't Jesus say, do not judge? But is that what Jesus actually meant, that application of those three words? Is that what he's talking about? And if not, what is he talking about? Well, that's what we're going to unpack this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're turning to, to Matthew 7, continuing our Sermon on the Mount series. My flow this morning is pretty simple. I want to talk about what Jesus is saying when he says those three words, what he's not saying, and that our, what our response should be this morning. Um, so again, turn to chapter 7. Um, before we dive into the text, I want to zoom out a bit and just talk about kind of Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Chapter 5, as we entered into this sermon, Jesus talks about and emphasizes the coming of the kingdom of God and the implications of that reality. In chapter 6, he shifts a bit and starts to talk more about the fatherhood of God. God is our father. And in chapter 7, we're going to see a bit of another shift. And Jesus is going to talk actually more about God as our judge. So for example, last week we talked about do not worry. Why? Well, because you have a heavenly father who cares for you. He loves you. So you don't have to worry. But today we're switching gears. Now, before we talk about, like, I think it's worth just mentioning, I think for a lot of people, it's kind of hard to wrap their minds around the reality that God is judge. Especially if you combine that with the reality that he is also our father. I think it's tough for people to to wrap their minds about both those things, but this isn't an either or thing with our holy God. This is a both and. So let let me explain and tell you what I mean. When we are born into this world, we are born with a problem. And we read that problem this like just a little bit ago, Ephesians 2, 3. Says we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were, listen to this, by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. By like our nature, 
at our core, what is flowing through our veins, the reality of Adam and Eve sinning in the garden, what that means for us today is we are born into this world sinners, guilty in front of a, a holy God. And what we deserve for the reality of that situation is wrath. That would be the, the rightful judgment of a holy God against sinful people. But the good news of the gospel is that blood was spilt on that cross. And now there is an invitation to not be a guilty enemy, but now to be a son or a daughter of a royal family that we never deserve to be a part of. Everyone in this room has the opportunity to receive the Father as your Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you reject God, you're not only remaining underneath the wrath of God, but you're rejecting Him as your Father. But on top of that, if, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, this, this reality should blow your mind away. The same God who is the final judge, who at the end of all things will judge all things and all people, that same God is the same God who sees you in your worry and wraps his arms around you and says, you don't need to worry. I got you. I love you, and I am not going anywhere. So God is our judge and our father. Shouldn't leave us in a spot of confusion, it should leave us in a spot of wonder and awe for the God we serve. And I want to start by saying all of that because I think that's the foundation and the lens with which we need to view our passage this morning. God is judge, we are not. And with that in mind, we go into these first couple of verses. All right, so we see these first three words and what follows. Jesus says, do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge Others, and you'll be measured by the same measure you use. Okay, I think it's important to start by defining the word judge. That Greek word for judge actually has a wide spectrum of meaning. So it could mean to judge as in like a judge in a, in a court of law, judging judicially. Uh, it could mean to discern like right and wrong and different things. Or it could mean to judge in a condemning way, looking down on other people. So there's a wide spectrum. So we have to look at the context of our passage to know what Jesus is talking about. And the context of the passage in the Sermon on the Mount is the religious landscape of that day was there was hypocritical religious leaders everywhere. They were pretending to be righteous and holy. Meanwhile, looking down on everyone else, pointing their finger at everyone else, it was hypocrisy. And Jesus knew it, and he was speaking directly to these people. And he was saying, don't judge in a hypocritical way. Why? Because you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. Now, that statement, I think um, if you dig into this text a bit, you go, is that other people judging us? Is that God judging us? And I'd, I'd say, yeah, I think in... It, there is truth. When you judge others, other people around you, and maybe that person will judge you with the same standard that you have judged them. Absolutely. I think there's truth to that. But I think the bigger thing in view here is what I just talked about. We have a God who is, capital J, judge. He is judge. We are not. And so, yes, you might be judged by others, but more importantly, you'll be judged by God himself. So Jesus gives us this principle, and then he gives us an illustration to make his point. So he gives us clarity on what he is saying when he says, do not judge. So here are the verses. Here's his illustration. He says, why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Okay? What Jesus is using here is hyperbole. This is an intentional overstatement to drive home the point. We use hyperboles all the time today, right? We say things like, um, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. It is raining cats and dogs. I drove a million miles to get here. When you hear those things, you don't go, really? You drove around planet Earth 40 times to get to my house? That seems a little excessive, right? Or like, it's not actually raining cat. If it was raining cats and dogs, that would be very confusing and very dangerous, right? These are hyperboles that are intentional overstatements to make a point. Jesus does this all throughout his teaching, and he's doing it again here. And the two objects he's using are beams and splinters, which think about this. If you know Jesus, he's a carpenter. He's very familiar with both of these objects, beams and splinters. And he's using both of these objects to rebuke hypocritical judging. And within this hyperbole, I think there's two main points that Jesus has for us. The first is a bit obvious, and I think the second is a little more subtle. So let's talk about the first one. Let's talk about the beam in our eye. When Jesus says beam, he's talking about blatant sin in your own life. As kingdom people, we are called to first identify those blatant sins in our own life and deal with those first before we go and look to anyone else. Now, this doesn't mean we're going to be sinless. Only Jesus was sinless. But if there is blatant sin, we need to address it. The, the person who has the beam in their eye, this is the person who, uh, when, when they see people around them, they love to point out everyone else's faults, but they are oblivious or, or just lazy to their own sin in their life. They're blind to their sin, but they're so good at pointing out everyone else's. If you want an example of this, there's, there's plenty throughout Scripture. But there's one really helpful one, I think, in 2 Samuel. So 2 Samuel, if you know the story of David and Bathsheba, David commits adultery with Bathsheba and uh, a horrible sin in and of itself, but then he brings in Bathsheba's husband and eventually has him killed on the battlefield, adultery and murder. And at this point in the narrative, David has not yet repented of his sin. He hasn't owned it yet. And so God sends Nathan to David to help him remove the beam. And he uses a parable to do it. So listen to this. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her and she grew up with him and with his children. From his meager food, she would eat. From his cup, she would drink. And in his arms, she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guests. David, after hearing this, was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, because the man who, uh, the man who did this deserves to die, because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. And, and then Nathan replies to David and says, you are the man. Nathan comes to David and exposes his plank. He's saying, oh, you're so quick to be ready to kill this rich farmer. Meanwhile, 
You have a closet full of sin that you are not dealing with right now, David. You are the man. And in Psalm 51, well, actually what we see is David owns his sin, repents from the, in front of the Lord, and takes the beam out of his eye. Now we can look at David and go, oh, man, I can't believe he missed that. How could you miss that after the blatant sin that he just did? But this, this isn't like an Old Testament problem with a guy named David. This is a right here and right now problem within all of us. And if this gets ignored, it becomes a cancer in our lives. Uh, as I was studying for this passage, I, uh, I asked Casey last week, I said, this is a passage and this is the illustration. What are, uh, what are some beams in my life right now, Casey? And boy, you want to have a humble conversation. Just ask, ask that question to your spouse over lunch. That's a fun game to play. Uh, she said, yeah, Jordan, I think sometimes like your encouragement towards me is to, to be more gentle with my words. She goes, it's totally true. But she goes, at the same time, you can be pretty short, quick, and impatient yourself with your words. And as soon as she said it, I'm like, you're totally right. You're totally right. I need to take the beam out of my own eye. I see it in my marriage. We also see it. We've seen it throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount series. You can find examples all over the place. Last week, you know, are, are you quick to tell somebody, hey, don't worry. Meanwhile, you are consumed by the fear of your future. Are you, are you quick to point the finger at somebody who has a lot of money or a lot of possessions? You can't believe how they're spending their money. Meanwhile, that same greed is in your own heart or you have jealousy towards that person. Are you quick to point out other people's sexual sin, yet you have a closet full of different sin, of the same kind of sin in your own life? Well, let's talk about, I think this is maybe a helpful context to have this conversation. Let's talk about um, parenting. Parents, do you have an expectation for your kids that is not true of your life? When you see your kids fighting, getting angry with one another, kind of slapping and hitting, do you get frustrated with them Meanwhile, an hour later, they're watching you and your spouse get angry and yell at each other or there's sin bubbling up in the kitchen. Do you tell your kids, hey, you need to apologize and get, get mad at them when they're, they're not listening or they're not apologizing to their siblings or whatever it may be. Meanwhile, they're watching your life and for some reason, it seems like you are never wrong and you never listen to anyone or it seems like you never apologize. Do you see how that would be confusing for kids? But this isn't just parents. This is also um, kids, right, too. So if you're, a, if you're a kid, if you're a, a teenager, uh, believe it or not, I was a teenager once. You probably can believe that. I kind of look still a little bit like a teenager, right? <laughs> but if you're, if you're a teenager, I had this in my heart, where, where I, would, I would start getting so nitpicky with my parents, the things that they were doing, the, the way that they were parenting, the way they were respecting me, right? The whole time, not respecting them. Is that true of your life, kids? Do you, do you follow the fifth commandment to first and foremost to honor your father and your mother? I think there's a lot of examples we could unpack. I think a, a simple question that maybe gets to the heart of it all is this. Do you spend more time pointing out other people's problems or confessing your own sin? If that's you, if any of these things are you, you need to take the beam out of your eye 
You need to repent. I've said the word repent multiple times. I realize that. That's a fancy church word. What I mean when I say that is that you need to own your sin before God our Father and before others with a broken spirit and ask for forgiveness and then change the way you think and your actions will follow down that path. Once you do that, you will be able to see clearly. Then once you see clearly, what are you supposed to do? Okay, so that's, that's, that's the first thing. Take the beam out of your eye. Here's the second thing. I think it's a bit more subtle. After you take the beam out of your eye, also love your brother or sister enough to take out their splinter. You see this here. First, take out the beam out of your eye, verse 5, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Now, in your translation, it might say speck or something like that. Uh, I actually really appreciate the CSB translation here to say a splinter in your eye because we all understand splinters. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how high your pain tolerance is. When you get a splinter in your finger, that's not a fun experience, right? We don't enjoy that. It's irritating. It is annoying. Now, imagine having that splinter in your eye. I have not ever experienced that. That sounds horrible. Uh, but I called my dad, who's, I did a phone, I phoned a friend. I called my dad, who's a doctor. He works in emergency rooms and all sorts of settings. And I asked him, I said, have you ever seen a splinter in somebody's eye? He goes, actually, uh, a lot. And he said, I've taken out numerous splinters from uh, people's eyes. And he says, it's actually pretty common, whether it's a piece of wood or metal or plastic, they'll get it in their eye. And I said, so what happens? He says, well, essentially, like, it pierces the cornea, right? You know, the blood vessels get all jacked up and the, the eye fills with fluid, and, which is probably way more information than a lot of you wanted to know right now, right? I actually brought a really disgusting picture of an eye with a splinter. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I am totally... Yeah, that would have been amazing. Half of you would have walked out. Um, so I'm asking, but I'm curious, right? I'm just, I'm asking my dad these questions. I'm like, well, how in the world do you get that out? And he says, well, like they have drops, like numbing drops that they'll put in people's eyes so that the pain goes away. And he says, if it's on the surface, you can just take a cotton swab and just pull it out. Um, but he says, if it's a little, little deeper, he's like, I have to go in with a needle, like not this way, but like this way, and, and grab the item and pull it out. So I'm like, man, that's crazy. He says, yeah, and you got to be careful. Obviously, you don't want to go too deep. You want to be careful. Because once it's out, it pretty much heals on its own. You know, maybe some antibiotics, but it, it heals. And then he said one more thing that I just thought was super interesting. He said, Jordan, you know, in the emergency room after 1 a.m., you know what our two most common patients are? After 1 a.m., middle of the night, he says, kidney stones and splinters in the eye. You go, what? How are those two related? He goes, for both those patients, they try to tough it out during the day and they're like, oh, I'll sleep it off this like tonight and then I'll go in the doctor tomorrow. But the pain is so excruciating, annoying, irritating that they can't make it through the night. So they end up in the ER in the middle of the night. If you have a splinter in your eye, there is no rest. It is always irritating. So here's the deal. If I had a splinter in my eye and I went to my dad, you know what he wouldn't say? He wouldn't say, wow, that looks horribly painful. Good luck with that. <laughs> right? No, my dad loves me. So he would help me get the splinter out of my eye. As painful as that would be, I'd probably want him to do it. I love a lot of you, but I would want my dad to do that. Um, but once he did, I wouldn't think, wow, that was kind of painful. Why would you do that? Or I wouldn't get mad at my dad. That would be odd. I would say, no, thanks for loving me enough to take the splinter out of my eye. That, that wasn't a jerk move by my dad. That was a move of love. 
And in the same way, when you point out people's sin in your life who you love, that is not a jerk move. That is a move of love. Brothers and sisters in Christ need to love one another enough to remove the splinters. Our elder team recently, we decided to just kind of um, pair up uh, with different elders and kind of keep each other accountable, meet about once a month with our kind of small group of men and uh, confess sin, all those things. And I've been uh, paired up with uh, Nick Center and Stephen Jones, and we meet about once a month. And I'm telling you guys, it has been so life-giving to my soul um, in a lot of ways. But one of the ways is both those men now have helped me see clearly multiple times by taking splinters out of my eye. They've loved me enough to say hard things. And I've been so thankful for that and have been challenged to do the same for other people. So let me ask you the question, when was the last time you lovingly took a splinter out of somebody's eye? Or do you know somebody right now who you know and love who is walking down a path of sin and doing nothing about it? If so, First, remove any beam in your own eye, but then love your brother or sister enough to take out the splinter in their eye. Now, do it carefully, tactfully, lovingly. Yes, all those things, just like my dad did in the emergency room. But we need to do this. These Guys, I'm telling you, let's be honest. These are hard and messy conversations. But this is what Jesus is calling his church to do. This isn't an option. This is a command from our king. And it might be painful, but I'm telling you, it is the most loving thing you can do. So Jesus tells us to not judge with a hypocritical heart. And what he is saying when he says that, he's saying, hey, look in the mirror first, take any beams out of your own eye, repent of that sin, but then also love your brother or sister enough to go and take the splinter out of their eye. That's what Jesus is saying. I also want to talk about this morning, though, I think this is helpful to say what Jesus is not saying. You see, again, when our culture hears those three words, do not judge, um, you could probably put that on a banner as kind of maybe the number one rule for people to go, and like in culture today, to say, hey, do not judge others. Let everyone do what they want to do. Don't tell people what to do. Don't judge. Here's what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying to throw out all morality and discernment. All throughout scriptures, believers are called to discern between what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. I'll give you just one example. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 through 22. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. And once you test, hold on to what is good and stay away from every kind of evil. Christians are called to test everything, follow good, run away from evil. So how do we resolve this tension? We go, well, you say do not judge, but now you're saying, but also test everything. So how do you live in that? I like Jake Herring's words on this when I was talking about this passage. He said, think critically, yes, but don't have a critical spirit. Think critically, but don't have a critical spirit. So, so don't have a critical spirit. Don't, don't hypocritically judge people's, like other people, take the beam out of your eye, but at the same time, don't throw out discernment and critical thinking in your life. The Bible is clear. We're called to discern good and evil, choose the right path. And then what Jesus does in this last verse is he illustrates this point, and he talks about, when it comes to discerning, discerning the true character of somebody and what we're supposed to do with that. So let me read verse 6. 
says this, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. All right, I want to start off talking about dogs and pigs. Um, when I say dogs, don't think about that little cute golden doodle puppy that your family just adopted, okay? That's not what we're talking about. Okay, side note, real quick. Can we talk about that? Adopting a puppy and call it what it actually is. That's, it's, it's legalized kidnapping is what it is. I, I remember when we got Coda and I looked at him and I looked at his mom and I'm like, you will never see your mom or siblings ever again. And we're taking you with us. And I, I thought, in human terms, we call that kidnapping. Apparently in dog terms, it's adoption. And apparently I'm okay with it because we brought him home and we still have him and we'd probably do it all over again. Don't think golden doodle, right? What I want you to think about is more like wild hyenas roaming through the streets, looking for anything to, to devour or tear to pieces. That's the kind of dogs that Jesus is talking about. And in a similar way, we're, when he talks about pigs, don't think about the cute little, I don't know, pink piggy that's on your um, children's book that's smiling at you, right? Um, pigs can be cute, I guess, if you want to call them that. Um, but let's be honest about pigs for a second. In the Old Testament, they were considered unclean. And if you know anything about pigs, they are savage animals. Now, I am no farmer. I know that's mind-blowing information. I am not a farmer, but my best friend from high school, Carson, he is. And he works with pigs, and I called him. I phoned another friend this week. And he was actually in the process of, of loading hogs. And, and I told him, I said, hey, Carson, just help me out here. Talk, tell me the truth about pigs. What's really going on? And he ended up sending me a video to just show it to me. And I don't, I, I don't have like the video, but I took a screenshot of what he sent me. So there's Carson's pant leg and there's pigs. And you can kind of see him kind of like coming up to Carson, curious or whatever. But if you look a little closer, that, especially that pig on the left, he's starting to gnaw on Carson's leg, his pant leg. And Carson says, yeah, you, if you stand in, in a hog barn, they'll just come up and they'll start, you know, sniff, sniffing a little bit, but then they'll just start chewing on you. I'll start gnawing on you. And there may be a side of that. You go, oh, that's kind of cute. Not cute, actually. If a, um, if a pig dies, Carson was telling me this, if a pig dies in, in a pig pen, especially in a hot summer day, if you don't drag that pig out that day, the next day, that, that pig is skin and bones. All his little piggy friends turned on him, and apparently he's dinner that night, right? There's a reason you don't want to have a heart attack or pass out by yourself in a hog building, because pigs are savage animals, and they will devour anything that is in front of them. They're ruthless. Therefore, if you give a pearl to a pig, sure, they might chew on it a bit, but then they're going to realize it's tasteless and hard and whatever, and they're going to spit it right out. And then in Jesus' words, they're going to turn and look to you and be ready to devour you. So what Jesus is talking about, when he's talking about people being dogs and pigs, he's saying, hey, don't give the valuable message of God's, of God's kingdom to people who will just trample and devour it. Discern who the dogs and pigs are and don't give rich truths to people who are vicious and unappreciative. Ultimately, your truth might not only anger the people, they might turn and look to devour you. So how do we apply this? 
You know, I think at the end of the day, the principle is the same, but there's like a couple different applications that I kind of read as I was studying this, and I think they're both faithful to the text and to God's scripture. The first would be evangelism. And maybe if you've studied this text out, this is maybe what you've heard, where, where you say, well, when you're sharing the gospel, telling people about Jesus, if you run into somebody who just steamrolls everything you say, they keep cutting you off and making more rabbit trails, they antagonistically spit out everything over and over, we, I think Jesus would say like, hey, pray God would soften their heart someday, but at some point, give your efforts to someone else. And you might go, well, did Jesus really say that? Did he mean that? Well, if you go to Matthew 10, 14, he tells his disciples, if anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. So he gives, even when he was telling his disciples and sending them out, he was encouraging with the same thing. And then if you go to Acts 13, 44 through 46, uh, you get a story of this, you know, where Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. It says, the following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. They threw the pearl in front of the Jewish people, and at some point they said, hey, we're taking these pearls to the Gentiles. Now, I can feel maybe some angst in your heart, maybe as you're hearing this. Do we need to be persistent and patient as we tell our friends and family the good news of the gospel? Absolutely. And I would say the majority of the time, this is the posture we need to have, to be patient, persist, all of those things. You see Jesus being so patient with so many people in the gospels. I'm just saying, and what Jesus is saying is here, is we at least need to have a category of not giving pearls to pigs. Need to be aware. So, so you might go evangelistically. That might be one application of this. The other application is a bit more new to me, but as I think about the context of the passage, it makes more and more sense. Maybe in some ways Jesus is saying, hey, when you give the rich truths of words of correction and love and try to take out the splinter in somebody's eye, and they just spit that truth out over and over, at some point, Jesus is saying, you might need to go to the next person who needs to hear truth. Now, this isn't somebody who you come and speak truth and they get a little defensive the first time. That's not what Jesus, I believe, is talking about. This is the person who hears biblical correction over and over and over, but is content with living with all the splinters in their eye. So fair warning, this might be someone that you know, or this this might be you. If, if you have friends in your life who keep trying to, to love you enough to point out sin, to, to correct in a way that is biblical, and you keep spitting it out and turning them away, at some point they might look you in the eyes and go, I love you, but I'm going to start giving my time to someone else. Ultimately, what's true of both of those applications is you're dealing with somebody who's not humble or receptive, but instead is antagonistic towards the truth. And we need the help of the Holy Spirit to discern how to engage these different situations. But I believe what Jesus is saying here is in order to follow this command, we need to discern the true character of people so that we don't give pearls to pigs. So if the first five verses warns against hypocritical judging, verse 6 kind of gives us a warning, hey, be sure to discern people's true character as you go and speak to them in love. So there you go. There's like kind of the deep dive under the iceberg, what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. And I want to end our time by simply go, hey, 
What's our response? In light of all of that, what should our response be? As I was thinking about this passage, I thought about Luke 18 and a parable that Jesus told. said this, he said, he also told this parable, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Again, this is the religious landscape. And Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this one, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. When we look at the Pharisee, it's pretty, pretty easy to go. It seems like he had a beam in his eye. A lot of pride in his heart and everything that's going on, and he's pointing at everyone else, all the other splinters, beam in his eye. Tax collectors doing the opposite. What's the difference between the two? I think the, the difference is pretty simple. The tax collector had a clear view of who he was and who God is. He knew that God is infinitely more holy than he could have ever imagined, and he is infinitely more guilty than he could have ever dreamed. And his response was a brokenhearted spirit. So how do we walk the same path of the tax collector who humbled himself? Well, I think we need to continue to grow and having a greater view of who God is and a greater view of how sinful we really are. And as that gap continues to grow in our mind, you know what happens? The cross of Jesus Christ becomes to get bigger and bigger. We sang a new song this morning, the cup was not removed. Because of the infinite gap, Ephesians 2, 3 is real, that we are by nature children under wrath. We deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath, absolutely. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus in that garden said, I am ready to drink the cup in their place. The one who never had a beam, never had a plank in his eye, gave up his life as a living sacrifice. And Jesus absorbed, he drank the cup of the wrath of God so you and I don't have to. He took on the judgment of God so that we could call God Father. That's the good news of the gospel. And so Christian, what should our response be to this incredible reality? Humility. We deserve judgment and wrath and all we received was grace and mercy as we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Therefore, apply that to our text and say, in humility, see your own sin. Own it. Repent of it. Ask for forgiveness. Take the beam out of your eye in all humility, knowing who God is, knowing who you are. But then also in humility, Go to your brother or sister in Christ and love them enough to take the splinter out of their eye. And finally, take a humble posture as you discern good and evil, the true character of others, so that we can be good stewards of the truth that Jesus has given to us in his word. Candeo, I, <laughs> I promise you, 
We are not, and I mean, we're not going to be the perfect church, right? Where everyone is sinless in this church. I'm going to screw up. You're going to screw up. We're all going to screw up at times. But I'm telling you, if our church was marked by these kind of characteristics of humility, my guess is that people walking into our church family that were new would go, wow. And that's, that's a church family I could be a part of for a very, very long time. Our call as kingdom people is to submit to our perfect king to walk in holiness, and to help others do the same in humility. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are so good and so kind to us. We have more planks and splinters in our eye than we will ever know. But we are grateful that the one who never had a plank in his eye came for us. That Jesus, you stepped down from heaven, came to earth, took on human flesh, and went to that cross on our behalf. You absorbed the wrath of God. You drank the cup in our place. And Jesus, because of that, we are eternally grateful. Oh, Jesus, help us to be the kind of people who have humility in this life. For sure in our own lives, but also as we shepherd others around us. We need your help. We need your guidance. We need your Holy Spirit. We need you, Jesus. But again, this morning, we are thankful for what you've done. And in light of that, we worship you now through singing. We love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.